Right, there's a, uh, there's a title for you, The Heart of Worship, and I hope that you've picked up that that's something of a theme that has started at the beginning of our service. And I, I really was hoping that I was going to be able to tackle Daniel chapter 3 in, in one big bite, but it just hasn't been possible, and so I'm going to handle it uh, for you in two parts, part one this morning and part two next week. Now, when it comes to, to biblical stories, Old Testament stories, there are at least four handles four interpretation handles that you've got to keep in mind as you go through. So let me just point them out for you. As, as, you, as you come to them, and hopefully, there we go, they're coming up. There's the first one, is to note that they are true. The Bible stories and the miracles, they are true. They are not, uh, they are not fairy tales. Like William Barclay, who turned around and said this about walking, Jesus walking on the water. He said, quote, Jesus didn't walk on the water. The boat was only in four inches, and that's why it looked like he was walking on water. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into a real fiery furnace. And we'll look at that a little bit more next week. Here's a second interpretation at handle. We, we always need to ask the question, why did the storyteller tell the story? What, is he, what, is he, what does he want us to get? And, and what does he want the original hearers to hear? And the writer of Daniel is writing to, to, to Jewish exiles in Babylon, and he wants to encourage them. He wants to encourage them to live godly lives in the face of very difficult circumstances. He wants them to be faithful to God no matter what the cost. It was the U.S. President uh, uh, George Washington who said, Few men have the virtue to withstand the highest bidder. Few men have the virtue to withstand the highest bidder. And he's right. I mean, most people have got a price. And a a truly godly, uncompromising Christian man or woman is a very rare commodity today. A little bit more about that next week when we come to part two. Here's a third handle. When we're looking at these stories, we always need to remember what did Jesus say about the Old Testament. And do you remember those words in Luke 24, 47, where where it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all of the Scriptures concerning Himself. And one of the ways which I think is really lovely to put this is this. When you're reading an Old Testament story, look for the footprint of Jesus. Look for the footprint of Jesus over the story. And I want to tell you this morning, we're going to see one of the most wonderfully big footprints over the story of Daniel 3 this morning. And then a fourth uh, sort of interpretation handle is, is, is repetition. You find in the Old Testament stories, very often the teller says the same thing again and again and again and again. I hope you picked that up in Daniel chapter 3. There was some serious repetition. And why do they want to repeat? So that you get the main point, that you get the main thing, that you see the thing that he wants you to see over and over and over. So with these four sort of things in mind, let's go to my first heading as we come to Daniel chapter 3. I hope you've got the scriptures open in front of you. Some of the scripture will come up on the screen. Let's look at the context, the context. So look at Daniel chapter 3, verses 1, 2, and 3. Nebuchadnezzar sets up this 
image of gold. Just to put it into our standards, it was around three meters wide and it was about 27 meters high. This was one monstrous image that he had set up. It was probably not pure gold. It was probably gold overlay. But what is important as you look at the story is that this tower was set up by Nebuchadnezzar where? He set it up in the plains of of Jura in Babylon, which just happened to be the same place that the people set up the tower at at Babel. Yeah. And do you remember the words of, uh, of, of the people in Babel, don't you? In Genesis chapter 11, verse 4, they create this sort of huge tower, and they say, come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches up to the heavens so that we might make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we might be scattered over the whole face of the earth. I mean, this tower in Babylon is deja vu of the Tower of Babylon, uh, of the Tower of Babel. This, this is Nebuchadnezzar wanting to live the glory days of Babel. This is a little bit like Putin trying to live the glory days of the USSR. Now, Nebuchadnezzar builds this tower of image, of gold. Notice there's a whole lot of pomp and ceremony. And anybody who's the who's who in the Babylonian zoo, they are called to come and worship this image. Now, just a little note to note is that Daniel's not in the story, is he? Daniel's not in this one. He's away somewhere, probably Daniel chapter 2, verse 8. He's been appointed as the second in command after interpreting the dream. And now maybe he's away on king's business somewhere. But the context of the story is quite extraordinary when you consider that Daniel 3 comes after Daniel chapter 2. Now let me give you a summary of Daniel chapter 2, and this would have come out of last week if you were here. Here's, what, here's the point of Daniel 2. Here's what Daniel was saying to Nebuchadnezzar in the interpretation of the dream. The God of heaven is the God who deposes and sets up kings, and he will, in the end, bring all human kingdoms to an end and will establish his own everlasting kingdom. That's Daniel 2. And would you say with me this morning that that is somewhat relevant to the times in which we live? But I want you to notice how Nebuchadnezzar responds to the interpretation. Have a look at it. If you've got your Bible, flick back. It's Daniel chapter 2, verse 46 and 47. So here's how Nebuchadnezzar responds. He falls prostrate before Daniel, and he, and, he, and he pays honor to him, and he ordered that an offering of incense come and be presented to him. And the king says to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and, and, the, and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Now, look at that carefully. Here's what I want you to see. Can you see that Nebuchadnezzar still doesn't get it? He still hasn't quite got it. In response to the interpretation, he basically bows down and worships Daniel. And the thing that he gets is, 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 is that God is the greatest of gods, not the only God. But the thing that Daniel is so, um, uh, the thing that um, Nebuchadnezzar is so struck by is that God is the revealer of his future. He is the, the revealer of mysteries. Understanding truth, truly understanding truth, can take a long time for people to grasp. But rather comically, 
in Daniel telling Nebuchadnezzar that he was the head of gold, that interpretation went somewhat to Nebuchadnezzar's head, if you will excuse the pun. Because Nebuchadnezzar decides he's going to make an entire statue out of gold for himself. It's like he says to himself, well, if Daniel's God tells me I'm the head of gold, why don't I just make a whole statue of gold for myself? Truth can be very, can take a long time to understand, but truth can also be so easily misunderstood, perverted, and twisted by the human heart when it is so drunk by the alcohol of self. Nebuchadnezzar is not really paying attention, is he? I wonder if you're paying attention this morning. He's not really paying attention to the meaning of the dream. He's not really paying attention to the truth of the dream that's being given to him. He's not paying careful attention. And God has to teach him another big lesson, which you'll hear about in two weeks' time. Have a look at Proverbs chapter 4. And verse 1, where the, the writer says, Listen, my sons and daughters, to your father's instruction. Pay attention and gain understanding. It goes right through Proverbs. Now then, my sons and daughters, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Here's a question I want to ask you right at the start here. Are you and I really paying attention to what we read in the Word, what we study in the Word, what we're taught from the Word? Are we truly paying attention? Are we hearing? Are we understanding? Are we taking it in? Or, or are, we, are we hearing, but we're, we're not really hearing? We're understanding, but we're, we're not understanding. We, we're, we're so much of hearers, but we're not really doers. This was the real problem with Israel, wasn't it? In the context of Israel in Babylon, how many times were they told that they were going to go into exile because of their sin and they just didn't listen? Which takes me to my second heading, the repetition. I hope you picked up the repetition that came through in the reading so, for example, if you look at verse 2, the who's who in the Babylonian zoo, that tends to get repeated a few times, doesn't it? You know, the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the, the whatnot, verse 2, and then it's repeated again in verse 3. Then we're told about all the musical instruments that get played, and when you hear that, you have to buy down, and we're told about the, the horns and the flutes and the zithers and what name. I don't even know what a zither is. Anybody know about that? Uh, tell me afterwards. Mentioned again, so that's mentioned in verse 5, the horn and stuff. It's mentioned in verse 7. It's mentioned in verse 10. It's mentioned in verse 15. You've got to ask yourself the question, why, why the repeat on those things? Why does he keep repeating about the, 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 the who's who? Why does he keep repeating about the musical instruments? And, and I, I think most of the commentators, when they look at this, this is what they say. They say that Daniel 3 is subtly, satirically mocking the occasion by repeating the details. That, that the writer is satirically mocking 
the occasion. The, the, the image and the pomp and the musical occasion is really seen as a bit of a joke against the backdrop of Daniel 2, where it is God is the God of the heavens. He is the one who sets up. He is the one who disposes at his will. They're mocking. Let me ask you this question. Do you know how God responds to the egomaniacs like Nebuchadnezzar and the Vladimir Putins and others in this world. Do you know how God responds? Can I show it to you? Take a look in Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against His holy anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Here comes the response. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has installed Jesus Christ on the throne of heaven by his death and resurrection and ascension to the right hand And the Lord Jesus Christ laughs at those who would abuse the power and authority that he has given them. I want to say this to you this morning. God will bring Nebuchadnezzar down. You'll see that in two weeks' time. God will bring Putin down. But here's the thing. God's timing of things is not quite our timing, is it? He doesn't do it when we want him to do it. But the kingdom, the kings and the kingdoms of this world will come down. But I want you to have a look at the next two repetitions in the story, which are so important. Here's the first one. It is repeated so many times that Nebuchadnezzar set up the image. If you've got your Bible, you could have a look at it in verse 2, 3, 5, 12, 14, 18. Nebuchadnezzar sets up the image. Here's the second repetition that the people were commanded to worship the image that Nebuchadnezzar had made. So when the music played, they were to bow down and worship the image. Mentioned verse 5, 6, 7, 10, 11, 12, 14, 15, 17, 18, and verse 28. Here's the constant repetition. People bow down to the image that Nebuchadnezzar has made. Why the repetition? Why does he say it time after time after time after time? At least 10 times in the passage. And here's the reason. Because the writer of Daniel 3 wants us to truly see the idolatrous nature of the human heart. Daniel 3 wants us to see the idolatrous nature of every human heart. Which takes me to my third title. The idolatrous human heart. Now it might be something of a satirical joke that Nebuchadnezzar, so in love with himself, sets up an image to which everybody must bow down. 
But if the exiles truly read the story, the story is not that funny. Because Daniel 3 is not just repetitiously pressing the idolatrous nature of Nebuchadnezzar or the idolatrous nature of of all the Babylonians, but he's repetitiously pushing that every human heart is idolatrous. As the exiles read Daniel 3 and somewhat laugh, Daniel 3 is actually mirroring their own idolatry, which was the very reason that God put them into exile in the first place. Here's the thing. Sometimes you've got to see the ugliness in someone else before you see the ugliness in you. If you've ever been to countries like Cambodia, You've been to places like Bali and Indonesia and you go around, you'll see that every shop corner, every street, every home littered with little shrines, little idols, and got little food, little altars outside each one, and they sort of trying to curry favor with the gods. And we look at that and we think how stupid and how silly and how ridiculous that that might be. That those, but those idols mirror the idolatry of every human heart. Let's just think about the Israelites for just a moment. If you've ever read the Old Testament at any length, there is something that should strike you as quite somewhat shocking, if you like, when you read about the Israelites. The one thing they never do is they never what? They never get it. They never get it. They return over and over in the words of Peter. They return like a dog to the vomit in their idolatry. It doesn't matter how what God does. He, he saves them out of Egypt. He takes them through the Red Sea. He takes them through Jericho. He takes them into the promised land. He rescues them from their enemies over and over in Judges. But they never turn from their idols. They always return to their idols. They continually go back to their idolatry. Have a look at this. Despite rescue after rescue, look at this. Here's a comment in Judges 2. Whenever the Lord, from the book of Judges, whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to the ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. You see, as the Israelites looked at the idolatrous nature of Nebuchadnezzar, as they looked at the idolatrous nature of all those bowing down in fear for their lives, The Israelites were to see themselves. See, here's how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, you therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same Let me give you a, a, a wonderful, and it's a penetrating quote by a guy called David Helm. You know that, that golden image that Nebuchadnezzar set up, it was a magnificent bit of architecture. 
But here's what David, uh, David Helm said. He said, the architecture of our own soul rises to the heavens in self-adulation. See, the thing is, the, the heart problem of every human being is not sin per se. The heart problem of every human being is idolatry. A desire and an intent to worship something that is not God. The root of every sin is idolatry. A desire to be satisfied by someone or something other than God. And here's the thing that I want you to see this morning. Nothing human, nothing human, not even the supernatural miracles of God in the Old Testament and the miracles that Jesus did like walking on the water, none of those things can change the human heart. No amount of punishment can change the human heart. Even when God sent Israel into exile, it could not change their idolatrous hearts because that's why they kept on going back like a dog to the vomit. If you ever want to know, if you ever want to see that punishment cannot change a human heart, two ways to look at it. One, have a look at your kids. Okay? That would be one. Say no more. But here's another one. How many times do people get, get, get arrested and sentenced and go to jail for a crime and they come out of jail and what do they do? They do the same thing. You can have someone that's arrested, might be going to jail, on bail, and he does the very same thing. Human nature is idolatrous to the core. Every human being is idolatrous to the core. And idolatry is not merely bowing down to a golden statue. An idol is anything that you put before God. An idol is something that you love more than you love God. I want to give you a list of idols. I'll give you some modern ones, and I'm going to give you some more personal ones. So take a look. Here are some of our modern idols. There is the anti-Christian welfare state. There is scientism. These are all idols of our world. Communism, political democracy, nationalism, conservatism, Social adjustment, behaviorism, secularism, humanism, naturalism. Let me give you some more personal idols. Self, money, pleasure, sex, romance, amusements, sports, education. But we have to go deeper. We have to go deeper. Take a look at what Paul says in, in, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. He writes to the Christians and he says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is what? Which is idolatry. Do you see it? Greed, evil desires, lust, sexual immorality in all its forms is idolatry. It's all about the love of self. It's all about trying to gratify oneself apart from the Creator. It might not be a very pleasant thing to hear, but you and I are idolatrous to 
the core. So why were Israel in exile in Babylon? Why were Israel in exile in Babylon? The exile was an expression of the wrath of God on their idolatry. God was punishing Israel in exile as an expression of his wrath on their idolatry, which is a mere shadow of the wrath of God that is coming on every human heart of idolatry when Jesus comes back. Let me show it to you. Look at Colossians 3 verse 5 again, but then I'm going to add verse 6 to it as well. Paul says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And because of these, the wrath of God is coming. That's why the wrath of God is coming when Christ returns. It's coming on every human being because every human being exchanges the worship of the true God to worship substitutes and counterfeits. The human heart by nature looks for satisfaction and gratification and pleasure outside the bounds of God. And everything that we do wrong, every sinful thing that we do is an expression of our idolatry. Sin in all its forms, from sexuality from, uh, from sexual immorality to homosexuality to lying to greed to pride and everything in between, they are all expressions of human idolatry. And here is the sobering reality. You can't stop an idolatrous human heart and you can't stop your own idolatrous human heart. Trying to stop an idolatrous human heart is like telling a leopard to change its spots. You can't do it. It's like telling an Ethiopian to change the color of their skin. It can't be done. That's why in Jeremiah, prophets like Jeremiah say this about the human heart. In Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? This is why we get this expression in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. The Lord saw how, the, how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all of the time. In doing some um, research and prep for this particular message, I, I came across a very interesting article in the, in the, news, uh, in the, in the Guardian newspaper in Australia, and uh, this particular headline sort of caught my attention when it said, 24 ways to reduce crime. 24 ways to reduce crime. And do you know, it shouldn't be a surprise to you, that not one of the 24 ways to reduce crime said, change the human heart. Because every human heart is idolatrous to the core. Every human heart faces the wrath of God unless what? Unless that heart is changed to a heart of worship. What Nebuchadnezzar needed 
what those Babylonian officials needed, what the exiles needed, what every human being needs, what you and I need is a new heart. It's a heart that is changed from worshiping the created to worship the creator. And that is exactly, exactly what was promised in the Old Testament. The prophets that spoke to the exiles promised just that. A day is coming when God will change the heart. Prophets like Jeremiah, Ezekiel 36, 26. These, Ezekiel wrote to the exiles, I promise to give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Look at it in Jeremiah 31. He says, I will make a covenant. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. The promise to Israel, the promise to a people whose heart could not be changed even by supernatural miracles is that God would do something to change the human heart. God would circumcise their hearts. God would cut their hearts. God would turn their hearts in order to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And do you know how that happens? Do you know how that happens? Do you know how the heart is turned? Or do you know how the heart is changed? We'll take a look at it in this. Colossians 2 verse 11. In Him, in Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Look at it. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Who circumcises your heart? Who cuts your heart? Who changes your heart? Who turns your heart from a heart of worshiping the Creator to the Creator? It is Jesus Christ in His gospel. It is only through His life and His death and His resurrection. But believing in Him and being in Him and having His Spirit dwell within us that our hearts are changed, that God puts His Spirit in us. He takes out the heart of flesh and puts in, uh, takes out the, the heart of stone and puts in the heart of flesh. He writes his laws on our hearts to honor and obey him. This is the new covenant. This is the new creation that Paul spoke about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You understand that an uncircumcised heart cannot worship the true and living God. It's only a circumcised heart, only a cut heart, only a changed heart. And that's what the gospel does. That's the power of the gospel. The gospel does not merely make you right with God, which is beautiful. It does not merely forgive all your sin. How spectacular. But the power of the gospel is that through the life, death, resurrection of Christ and through the indwelling spirit, our hearts are changed to worship the true and living God. It's through the gospel that the 
power of idolatry. Let me call it the dominion power of idolatry is broken. And your heart is now able to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This, this, this is this is the power of the gospel. This is the gospel. This, this is Christianity. And let me give you a, a one and a half verses from the New Testament where, where the Apostle Paul just pulls it all together. Look at this. Halfway through verse 9, Paul writes to the Christians in Thessalonica and he says to them, they tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. There it is. There is there's the new heart. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. There's the gospel. Jesus, who does what? Rescues us from the, from the coming wrath that we saw in Colossians 3 and verse 5. Now what that means, and I'm just, I'm just, I'm just going gonna, just gonna to touch on it. What it means is that Christians, we, we have a new heart to worship God. The old heart, the old heart of idolatry is still there. Its dominion power is broken. It's, it's still there. It's still generating those desires that, 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 that want to worship self and things. And that's for another sermon. But if you get that, you understand why the Apostle John wrote this at the end of his letter, 1 John 5, 21, when he said, dear children, he's writing to Christians, dear children, keep yourselves from, from idols. Okay. That's for another time. Let me, uh, let me start to wrap up this way. And I'm going to, under the heading of you and your heart, I'm, I'm simply going to ask you four questions that I want you to think about and ponder, contemplate, chew on. Here's the first one. Do you see your idolatrous heart? It is actually very easy to see it in someone else, isn't it? Do you see yours? The great reformer John Calvin, he said this, he said, the human heart is an idol-making factory. Do you see Nebuchadnezzar in you? Do you see the, the satraps and the prefects and the whatnot in you? Do you see Israel in you? Do you see the exiles in you? Do you see you in you? I would dare say to you this morning that it's not a pretty picture, is it? It's not pretty. So do you see why the wrath of God is coming. Does it make sense? God's wrath is coming upon the human heart of idolatry to human beings that would bow to things created rather than the Creator whose name be honored and glorified forever and ever. Do you see that only Christ can give you the new heart 
Do you see that Christ is the only one that can rescue you from the coming wrath? Do you see that Christ is the only one that can give human beings a new heart? And the fourth question is, do you have this new heart? Do you have this heart that truly loves, worships, and adores the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Has Christ circumcised your heart? And if not, would you come to him today? Would you ask him to circumcise, cut, change your heart? That you would worship him in spirit and in truth because those are the worshipers that the Father seeks. Spend a moment just thinking about it. I'm going to ask the music team if they'll join me up front.